Awesome. Well, you guys can be seated here today, man. Thank you guys for gathering with us here today. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Uh, hopefully, as you came in today, you felt welcome, taken care of, and um, were hospitable, or people were hospitable toward you. Um, as you came in today, you should receive something called the weekly. Um, and inside of that, if you're a first-time guest, um, I would just ask that you would tear off this back connection card, that you would give that to us. Thank you. Um, that you would give that to us at the end of the worship service. You can do so just by folding that up and putting that in inside of the offering box when you leave. Please take a moment to do that. Um, also today, you should rece- receive something um, inside of your weekly as well, two little sheets of paper and a little index card. Um, toward the end of the worship experience, I'll go over what that is actually for. We're going to be using that in our response time today. So you can just tuck that away if you want. Follow along with me uh, through some sermon notes. If you like to keep notes or like to use those for your mission community group that meets on Wednesday nights, we encourage you to do that. If you have a Bible or one of your devices that you use, um, I would ask this morning that you would turn with me to follow along with me um, in the book of Romans chapter 10. We're beginning a new chapter here this morning, and so uh, if you would please take out your Bibles or devices and turn with me to the book of Romans. Now, today... We continue a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago, a few months ago actually now, um, titled Never Fails, and because that is the question that is taking place between chapters 9, 10, and 11, is this idea of God is going to save people, but it appears as though that God is saving everyone but the Jews, Uh, because during even the writings of this text, Um, That's what was taking place. There were very few Jews coming to faith, uh, lots of Gentiles coming to faith. Even in our day-to-day, there are many Gentiles, that's us, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, congratulations, good morning, Um, that God is continually pouring out salvation onto uh, Gentiles, and it appears as though there is a trickle effect of what is taking place inside of the Jewish communities. And so there becomes this question, if God's chosen people are the Jews, if they are his special people, um, then it appears as though God's word has failed them. And if God's word has failed them, then that means that it can eventually fail us as Gentile believers as well. And so Paul is combating that um, by showing, as we even sang about this morning, and in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he tells us, it is not as though the word of God has failed. But a lot of our misconceptions about God, the scripture, his plan of salvation is actually based on a lack of knowledge. And so Paul begins to explain this lack of knowledge and the um, the proofs that his word hasn't failed. And so we talked about in the first part of Romans chapter 9 that God's word hasn't failed because God is going to elect people or has elected people in um, eternity's past for salvation. And so when we see somebody come to faith, that is because God elected them before they were, were born, before they did anything good or bad. And as they lived their lives, God appointed a present day and time that they would convert, that they would believe with their hearts, that they would repent um, with their mouths, that they would confess that Jesus is Lord and commit to follow after him. And so proof number one is that God elects his people. The second proof was that um, God's character 
um, is upheld in election. That's the second proof that because God is God and God can do whatever God wants to do and he has stated this is what I'm going to do, then he is faithful to complete that because he is God. Now, we spent several weeks talking about God's character and upholding God's character and then began a few weeks ago, two weeks, this is the third week of this, of looking at the third proof, which will probably keep us through, there will probably be 20 parts to this last proof, and that is that God will complete his mission. That God is a missionary. That God is a saving God, that he's a redeeming God, that he is, has a plan of salvation and is going to complete that. And he has many ways that he is going to do that. And one of the ways, and, or several of the ways that he is going to do that is through faith, as we talked about. We kind of explored those things, looked at those ideas. We've talked about this idea of that, that God is going to do it through one way, and that is the way of Christ. And then um, also uh, continuing on today that God is going to use the means um, by which he is going to save is the cross, is the resurrection, and he is going to use human beings whom he has saved in the proclamation of that gospel for the salvation of people. Let me take a drink, sorry. All right. And so God is going to complete his mission, and he's going to use Jesus. He's going to use faith. He is going to use individuals. He's going to use people. And so we're going to be exploring some of these ideas and kind of giving an intro to that very idea of God using people for the proclamation of the gospel actually today. So Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, is what we're going to be starting here today or covering here today. It says this in verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, For being ignorant of righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who believes. Alright, so the first thing that I want you to look at this morning is this idea is that God desires that we have a heart for the lost. Now these first two points, I'm going to just speed through them very quickly because here in a week or two weeks, I'm going to come back to this in great detail. So these first two ideas, so the first one is this, God desires that we have a heart for the lost. When we read this, Paul is writing to these people. He's established things like predestination, election, God's sovereignty and salvation. And yet, there is a human responsibility. Even in the proclamation of the gospel. And he tells this to his brothers, to his fellow readers. Brothers, my heart's desire. My heart's desire. God desires that we have a heart for the lost. Okay? Paul's once again speaking about his Jewish brothers. These aren't just foreign people out there that he doesn't know. Remember, Paul is a saved Jew. 
He has brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, family members, friends, co-workers, other Pharisees, other people who persecuted Christians, people that aren't just, that he doesn't know that he wants to be saved, because I believe that Paul does want those people to be saved, but he has people who are deeply close to them. He sees them. He has relationship with them. He knows them by name. He eats with them. He dines with them. He parties with them. He fellowships with them. He works alongside of them, and they are lost. And yet, what is Paul's heart? He has a heart for those people. He's pleading with those people. He's returning to this idea that we see first in Romans chapter uh, 9 verses 2 and 3, right? Where Let's even read that real quickly. It says um, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I could uh, wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying? His heart's desire is, God, if there's some way that I can substitute myself for them and them be saved, then I will gladly sacrifice myself. I will gladly go to hell so that my Jewish brothers and sisters will be saved. This is Paul's heart. God desires that you and I have this heart, as Paul has this heart, a heart for the lost. Paul has this heart for the lost. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is God's heart. This is God's heart. God has a heart for lost people, all right? You and I were once lost, but now we are found. We did not find God. He found us. Why? Because he is in great pursuit after his people who are currently lost and prodigal. He chases them down with grace, mercy, and kindness. So why does Paul grieve? Why does he long? Why does he deeply desire? Why does he have great anguish under a, a pressure cooker of pressure and, and desire and for these people to be saved. Because this is also true of God's heart. Remember Ezekiel 18.23 and then verse 32 in Ezekiel. He says this, this is God. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And then in verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. So turn and live. See, I don't want you to have this idea of salvation through God's sovereign grace and election and chosen predestination, all those words that cause us to squirm, which should cause us to praise. Because um, what is God's heart? God's desire. God isn't sitting up in heaven going, yes! Another one goes to hell. This is awesome. I am a great God. That's not God's heart. Don't misconstrue God's sovereignty above these things. I wrote for you a a quote from John MacArthur on your weekly notes. It says this, A theology that does not reflect genuine, heartfelt compassion for the lost and a deep desire for their salvation is a theology that is unbiblical. Read it again. A theology that does not reflect genuine heartfelt compassion for the lost 
and a deep desire for their salvation is a theology that is unbiblical. Now, if you were to stand before John MacArthur and ask him things like, do you believe that in God's elect? Well, if you know anything about John MacArthur, that is the poster child for the guy preaching election. All right? He's the poster child for predestination. He's the poster child for chosen. Okay, a bad rap gets thrown and stereotyped on a lot of brothers and sisters who believe like I do, like we do as a church in our, our mission statement or our, our belief statements, that, that God is sovereign, that he is elect, and so that in some way excuses us from evangelism. And yet, if you know Christian history, the largest evangelistic ministries and a ton of people who claim to believe in this direction, it is what propelled them to do missions and evangelism toward the lost, okay? It is unbiblical for us to believe in such things as God's grace, his sovereignty and election, and all of those sorts of things, and not have a deep burden and desire to see people saved. See, some of you are more reformed than the Bible, And you would never admit that with your lips, but you admit it with your practice. It's called hyper. It's being hyper. Any hyper, any one direction is a bad thing. People will sit back and they will just go, well, God's going to do what God is going to do. Is that true? Amen. Say it again. God's going to do what God is going to do. That is a truth. And yet, we'll use that as an excuse To not have a heart for lost people. Ladies and gentlemen, if that is you, you do not understand the gospel. You do not understand what God has done. And that is a scary, scary thought. And again, you won't tell that to my face or we won't share that out loud. But in practice, in the way that we work, the way we are with our neighbors, our friends, our family members, is, is that's what we really believe. We will pray all the time, God send someone to share the gospel with my family. And God is saying, that's why I've put you in that family. This is Paul's heart. Why? Because it is God's heart. And do not use it as an excuse for laziness. So this application question for you on this first section is this. Do you have a heart like Paul's heart? Or even better question. Do you have a heart like God's heart? Do you have a heart like Jesus's heart? heart because Jesus came to seek and save the what? The lost. This is God's heart. This is Jesus's heart. This is the Holy Spirit's heart. This is Paul's heart and it should be our heart as well. The second point that I think that we need to see this morning that the scripture points out as he continues on in that verse, um, brothers, it's my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them that is they may be saved. God desires that we pray for the lost. Not going to focus on proclamation today. Going to do that in a few weeks. Going to talk about your heart. Going to talk about your prayers. God is going to use your prayers, ladies and gentlemen. God is going to use your prayers. Please, once again, do not get so... uh, God's sovereignty is a huge thing in this, this body of believers. All right? But God still desires for people to seek him in prayer. 
This word that Paul uses, this term for prayer, is not the typical term that you will see in the New Testament for prayer. This term actually means to plead with a passionate prayer, a continual petitioning of God, of God. It's this idea of lamenting, of laying yourself on the ground, crying out to God daily, save these people. God, work in these people's lives. Have you ever noticed how we'll pray a lot of times and our prayers will consist of this, Lord Jesus, be with this, and then that's it. Lord Jesus, save them, and then that's it, all right? Lord Jesus, give me a million dollars. We'll pray that one three times, five times a day, all right? Especially if you bought a lottery ticket. But God's heart, Jesus' heart, the Holy Spirit's heart, because even Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we see them praying and interceding on behalf of people, and we see here that Paul is doing the same thing, that he is pleading with God. Lord, save John, save John, pleading with God. Because what does Paul truly believe? He has a theology that works. And so why does he pray, John, come on, you can do it? No, he prays, God, save John, save John. Every day, God, save John. Wake up in the morning, noontime, at, at bedtime, pleading with God, passionately pleading. And sometimes that may take a month. Sometimes it may take years. They may be on their deathbed, and yet there is still this earnest and this pleading with God to save an individual or a people. This is Paul. Why is this Paul? Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus. The cross is amazing, but we don't get to the cross without the garden. How many times is Jesus going away by himself to pray to God? How many times, a lot of times when we see um, Jesus weeping in the New Testament, do you know why he weeps? Is because people don't believe. He's weeping over their unbelief. He drives close to Jerusalem, riding a donkey, riding on Passover Sunday. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. Why? Because of their unbelief. God, save them. Paul illustrates a desperate plea in prayer for God to save his people. Another quote by Johnny Mack. It is not our responsibility to try to determine who God has chosen, but to proclaim the saving gospel to every person who will hear it, praying with Paul's earnestness that they will all receive Christ and be saved. Our responsibility is to diligently preach Teach, testify, and intercede. It's not your responsibility to play duck, duck, damned with people's lives. It is your responsibility to plead with Jesus first. Lord Jesus, save them, and then plead with that person, turn to Jesus. That's our responsibility. But let's face it, it's not happening. It's not happening. Because it's not our hearts. And it's not our prayers. Okay? Some of this is going to be a little tough this morning. All right? I'm a little fired up. Because as your pastor, it is my responsibility to have a big shepherd's hook. And I'm going to gently place it around your neck. Though my heart wants to beat you with my staff. 
okay? And sometimes it's hugs, sometimes it's a beating. It's called parenting, right? And we got to wake up, mission, because I have deep concerns for our hearts for God because I believe our hearts for God reflect in our hearts for people, okay? All right, here's the deal. Some of you have wayward parents, Some of you have wayward parents. Some of your parents are lost. And there is ate up with religion that you can't even stand to be around them. Because they're so religious that they are still missing Jesus. Some of you have kids. I can't imagine. Laura and I talk about this sort of thing. What are we going to do if Ava goes wayward? If she goes prodigal? Some of you are those parents. Okay? Some of you are wayward. Some of you are lost. Some of you have great Christian smiles on church on Sunday, and you are lost, and you are undone with Jesus. And I want you to know, as one of your pastors, for all of those situations, ladies and gentlemen, if you have lost parents, there comes a point in time as adults that the role reversal takes place. If they are lost and undone, and you're watching your parents commit spiritual suicide, and you're not pleading with God to save them? Man, where's your heart? Don't say no for your parents. Jesus needs to save some of our parents. He needs to save your grandma. She may be sweet and bake pumpkin pie like none other, but if she doesn't have Jesus, none of that matters. Some of you have friends, they're wayward. Pray for Jesus to save them. Some of you have kids, they are wayward. They are lost, they are undone. The other day, Laura was showing me some youth group pictures from when I was a youth pastor, and I was thinking about those kids. I was like, wayward, 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 wayward. Involved in a church, involved with a church, wayward. Lord Jesus, save those kids. They're adults now. It makes me feel old. I had hair when I was their youth pastor. I'm not anymore. I'm old. All right, but save them, Jesus. Pleading with God, save them. Jesus, please soften their hearts to the gospel. Well, I know they've heard it a million times, but God, save them. Shake them. As one of your pastors, my prayer that I often pray over you, especially when I'm seeing things that are, are, are looking more like the world and waywardness is taking place, is that God, this is a scary prayer, God, you do whatever it is takes whatever it takes to get their attention ladies and gentlemen it is better for your house to burn to the ground than for you to burn in hell and I pray if it takes your house burning to the ground and all your idols and my idols that we collect inside of those things because let's just face it they're just museums for our idols that in that place, if it takes for God to burn down your house, that God would burn down your house. Now, my house may be blazing today, and I'm going to cry, all right, because I like my idols in there. But if it takes my house to burn so that I may live in Christ, then my house needs to burn. Laura's heard this prayer since we have been together. Lord Jesus, I would rather you take my life than for me to have an affair against her. I would rather die. Lord Jesus, take my life. I would rather die than to in any way cheat on my spouse. 
Because I can't imagine looking at her. I can't imagine looking at my two bucket-headed kids. I can't imagine looking at you and having to confess that I have broken my covenant with God, that I have broken my covenant with my wife, and I have broken the covenant with those witnesses who gathered there at Hillview Chapel on that day, July 28th. It rained. They gave us the wrong cake. It was terrible. And Laura and I sat in a hotel bed that night smiling at each other. Why? Because we were married. And that was what was awesome. Scary prayers. But it's a heart. It's a heart. People are going to hell. We need to pray that God would save them. Some of you are drifting toward the fringe. You're drifting toward the, the outskirts. You're, 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 you're drifting. You're, you're starting to disappear on us. All right? Typically, when a girl disappears, you know what I know what she's doing? She's probably dating somebody she shouldn't be dating. I see this all the time in ministry. I've been at this for 14 years. I see this a lot. I see it in dudes, too. Okay? Dudes will lie about it. Girls just won't show up. I see this. You start to drift. You stop going to mission community group. You stop coming to church. You stop serving. All these sorts of things. You start to drift. And I want you to know, your pastors, me, I, one of your pastors, I am praying that God would do whatever it takes to shake your life, to turn you. Sometimes you have to grab that child, right, and take them and turn them. We're not going this direction. We are going this direction. And that's from the pastors to the people. Okay? This is a big deal, as we're going to see in just a moment. So my application question for this is, do you pray for the lost like Paul prays for the lost? Do you pray for the lost like Paul prays for the lost? Maybe a better question, do you pray at all? I long for the day when we are a people who have callous knees and tears streaming down our face for the lost. I do. I desire that as one of your pastors. I desire to see that. I desire to long for that. You know, sometimes I often wonder, because I like to shake things up sometimes, but we kind of create these monsters and these avalanches, is, is what happens if we came here on a Sunday morning and there was no music? If there, there, there was no children's ministry, if, if there wasn't any preaching but there was people on their knees with the bible because i don't know how you can pray without the bible to be really honest it should always be near because we should pray the scripture is what what happens to the church that is as consumed with praying for the lost praying for their city than they are about anything else what does Jesus claim when he gets really ticked in the temple? All right? So don't give me this stuff about Jesus never gets mad about what's happening in the church, because he does. All right? He beat people with a whip. Jesus. You know, buddy Jesus. Homeboy Jesus. Is running church people out of the church with a whip because they've made the church into something it wasn't supposed to be. And what's he screaming as he's doing it? This shall be a house of what? Prayer. Of prayer. But here's what we know as pastors. You won't come 
I mean, I grew up in a church that had Sunday morning, Sunday night, right? Wednesday night, and then they had pr- they'd implement every so often prayer meeting night. Guess which night was the least attended? Prayer meeting night. Because it's boring, right? Yet this is the desire of Paul. Man, I pray this for myself. I struggle with this. Confessionally, I just, I mean, I, I really struggle with, with praying for lost people, earnestly seeking them, seeking God to save them and to work in a mighty way. Last thing, we're going to spend the rest of our time here today. Third point the foundation of our lives must be built on truth. The foundation of our lives must be built on truth. Must be built on truth. What does he say there? He continues on. He says, I bear them witness, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, if you have your Bible or you make notes or whatever, I want you to underline that term, zealous. Zealous. So who is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the Jews. All right? And he says of them, what? I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, that they are zealous for God. What does it mean for zealous? It means um, to be hot, to boil, to be filled with enthusiasm, eagerness, devotion, single-minded allegiance, fervency, even to the point of being a fanatical, to be a stalker. This is what it means to be zealous, okay? And so Paul is speaking of the Jewish people, and he says what of them? They have zeal for God. They are burning white-hot irons for God. They love God. They're about God. They're about His grace, or not about His grace, but they have great extravagance. They are filled with enthusiasm about God. See, ladies and gentlemen, everything in the Jewish culture reflected their zeal for God. Did you know what they read in the Old Testament? It affected their sex lives. It affected their clothes. It affected what they touched. And it affected how they ate. And there's almost nothing better than uh, a nice, not that lean hamburger meat stuff that's like dust, all right? but a juicy, greasy hamburger. Thick, juicy. If they mix bacon into the meat, that only makes it better. All right? And not that craft fake cheese that you get out, out of the package and slap on there. I'm talking about some nicely grated cheddar or a big block of cheddar that you shave off some cheese, put that cheese on there, and you melt it. Now, a Jewish person can't eat that. It would not be kosher for them. But do you even know why? Because they can't eat meat and milk products in the same setting. The cheese has milk. The meat has meat. And if you add the bacon, that's even more a problem for a Jew. Poor people. Bacon is life. Right under Jesus. 
They can't do that. Everything in their lives, from what they wore, where they went, what they drank, all of these things were reflected in their zeal for God. We as believers in Jesus and, and Gentile believers, we need to learn some things from our Jewish brothers and sisters in the response of how all of Scripture is reflected in their lives. A few weeks ago, um, I, I was talking to you guys about the use of God's name in vain. And some of you had never heard those kind of talks before about God's last name just isn't using his name as a cuss word. But it's any time that we flippantly use the name Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, as we often do out of habit. To the Jews, God's name was so holy that the Old Testament, when it was translated, you've got to understand this, I'd hate to have this job, but when they would translate, let's say like one of their manuscripts was getting old and beaten and tattered because it was being used a lot. In order to make another transcript, they would have a person called a scribe, and you had all these things that you had to do to be able to come and to be a scribe, but that scribe was given the responsibility of translating the Old Testament into a new manuscript. And you know how we write, if you're copying a word, you write W-O-R-D, or you see the word word, and then you write W-O-R-D. This is not the way that a Jewish scribe would do it. They would look at it, and they would go, W, W, O, O, R, R, D, D. That's how you would translate the manuscripts for the Old Testament. Now, what's really interesting about that, as we talked a few weeks ago, is that every time that they would come to the name of God, Yahweh, the holy name of God, the great I am that is I am, the the forever name, the, the, the most glorious name on the planet, because they did not want to use that name in vain, did you know that when a scribe would come to that, he would actually write the word Lord. So whenever you look in the Old Testament and you see L-O-R-D, especially in capital letters, that is a replacement word for the term Yahweh because they don't want you to say the term Yahweh. They write the word Lord. But every time they would write L-O-R-D, D, immediately after they would finish writing it, they would take the pen or the quill that they were using and they would break it. Then they would go outside, and if they had water, they would wash their hands. And if they didn't have water, they would pick up sand to symbolically and begin to wash their hands with that because they never wanted anyone else to use that same quill to write the most holy name of God with. So every time, Lord, snap, wash your hands. Lord, snap, wash your hands. Over and over. Why? Because God is holy. His name is holy. It is to be proclaimed in all of the earth. They did not want to use it in vain. They had a deep passion for God. But here's the passion where it became a problem. Is they believed their passion is what would save them. And that's where they got it wrong. We have much to learn from them in regards to our passion for God. And yet we need to go against the idea that our passion for God is what saved us because they had become excited about the things of God, but they had not become excited about God himself. They were zealous for God, but it was not based on truth. 
Paul would say, as he did in Romans chapter 1, that this is the idea of worshiping creation instead of creation. The creator, excuse me. Our passion should be driven not by the idea that our passion for God will save us, but because God has saved us, we have deep passion for God. Do you understand that reversal? So should you watch what you eat? I would say yes. All right? Coach Mike back here has had me eat like a caveman for the last month. It has made major difference, though, in my body. Major. There is a big difference in eating things that God has made and eating things that man has made in a chemical, stirred it up, put it in like a, you know, a pan, a cookie sheet. Oh, that's going to be a steak and baked potato. And it comes out like Play-Doh and voila, you've got it. There is a huge difference in those things. All right. Should we be careful with those things? Yes, we should. Should we be careful about what we do on Sabbath? That there should be a day of rest. We call it Sunday fun day at our house. Okay? It's hard to get me to vacuum on Sunday. We try to get all that stuff done. We don't try to mow the yard. I hate mowing the yard on Sunday. Okay? We're going to relax. We're going to enjoy one another. We want to eat a meal with people. We want to hang out with our kids. We want to be in our PJs all day long. There's something different about Sunday fun day than all the other days. And it should be that way. However you deem that for your family. Okay? So, but, uh, you've got to get this because this is what we wrestle with. This idea, though, that in some way God is impressed with that. And because we have Sunday fun day at the baker's house, you are saved. That's not the way it works. But that's what the Jews believed. See, I believe that our zeal for God should be based on our understanding that God has saved us. Jesus faced us. He faced this. He would be followed. There would be all kinds of people. They'd be really excited. They would be mobbed. They would be stalkers. They would be the paparazzi. But then he shared truth, and what would people do? Leave! I'm fearful that this is not only true of the Jews, but that this has become true of the westernized American culture. Let's face it, we live in a church society where ignorant zeal is celebrated. Don't we? Ignorant zeal for God. Ignorant zeal for God is celebrated in our churches. And maybe this one. See, excitement draws a crowd, doesn't it? Excitement draws a crowd. If you see a mob, when I was in high school, when I was at Franklin, uh, we had lots of fights. It was a rough school. Okay? Lots of fights, kids getting thrown through glass windows. Okay? Knife fights, girl fights, you know, well, girl pullings of hairs, um, all these sorts of things. And if you ever saw a small huddle and people yelling, you had to go check it out, Right? You had to know what was happening, or better yet, you had to see who was getting their face smashed in. And so what happens is there's a small group of people. Two people start fighting. More people gather. Other people see the gathering. So what do they do? Before you know it, you've got a mob of kids yelling and screaming at whoever they're going with. They're going, ooh, ah, mm, look at that. Get him, Johnny. Put him in a body bag. 
All right, it's a bad Karate Kid reference there. Um, but we see this taking place because excitement, yeah, Johnny. I mean, excitement causes people to go, oh, what's going on? Man, it's really exciting at that place. I, I want to be a part of that. I want to join into whatever's going there. And so what happens is, is we begin to get really addicted to the zeal, to the excitement, to the emotion, all the while missing Jesus. Church culture where zeal is celebrated, that's the American church. When we have a great emotional, religious experiences that are not grounded in Scripture, then it is zeal without knowledge. We will also have a tendency to pick and choose scriptures to justify our feelings. Growing up, I I grew up in a very zealous church. Very zealous, very emotional, very excited. Okay? Music started, there was jumping, there was running, there was the waving of hands, there was the woman who screamed like she just got kicked in the gut. I'm not lying, you can ask my sister. All right, there were all of these things. It was extremely exciting. It was extremely emotional. There were many Sundays where we would go to church and I would weep and cry and see other people weeping and crying or laughing uncontrollably. And as many of you guys heard, the, the way we always measured whether or not it was a good service or not was based on whether we had preaching or not. Because, see, we would get to singing at 9.30 or whenever our worship started, and if the Spirit got to moving, and people got to running, and we got to singing the same chorus over and over and over and over and over again, and the more excited people got, the longer we just kept going and tep- kept, till we kept going, and then it would finally reach 12 o'clock, and the preacher would feel like, oh, we've been here for a while. You're dismissed. No preaching today. Major, major issues. Please understand, zeal on its own is not sufficient. Zeal on its own is not sufficient. If you have a, a daughter, you know that you cannot base any truth on her emotions. Because they will change as the wind blows. You can't understand that. You can't get it. It is needed. Zeal is needed. We're going to get into this in just a second, but it is not sufficient. On the day that Laura and I got married, on July the 28th at Hillview Chapter, there was great zeal. I had great excitement, okay? And you know why. All right? I was extremely excited. All right? We're going to have a great time. We're going to be married. This is going to be awesome. There's this anticipation. She looked beautiful, all this sort of thing. I mean, it was just uh, this great excitement, this great zeal. There was this great enthusiasm. And yet, my marriage today is, is, is deeper and, and more connected. And yet, we don't have those feelings every day. Why? Because my marriage today is based on real life. My marriage on that day was based on what I thought it was going to be like and all the fun that we were going to get to have. See, my marriage today is based on fact, not my emotions. It is based on a decision 
not my emotions. It is based on my commitment to God, not my emotions. It has got to be based on my commitment to Laura, not her emotions. Because, woo. All right? It can't be. It's, it's deeper today because it's based on fact. I live in the trenches with this woman every day. We have gone through um, emotional distress and distraught together. Only we can look at each other and go, we got it. We can now laugh when really bad things happen to us because they happen every day. But it could not happen on July the 28th. No one told me every day something bad is going to really happen to you. All right? If you've seen Alexander, no good, rotten, terrible, bad day, whatever, Laura and I just sat there, and my sister and Todd were with us when we took the kids to watch it, and they were like, this is y'all's lives. And we said, we know! We know! And so I can mope around about it, or I can be a man of God about it. All right? My wife, okay, get some meds and put a smile on your face and pray to God to help you. Okay? You need some therapy. It's okay. I've been on meds and had therapy. My wife's thankful for it. Okay? It's extremely important that it's based on fact not your emotion. Recently, I heard a true story about a person inviting somebody to come to our church. Not that they were trying to steal sheep. They were just inviting. They, they knew them. Hey, why don't y'all come, come to mission? Just come visit. And this is what the response was. <laughs> you know, I don't think we'll ever do that. You know why? Because our pastor's really funny. Our pastor's really funny. I go there because my pastor's really funny. That's a funny statement for about two seconds. Because that's not funny. It's not funny. It's extremely serious. But that's what we want. That's what we want. Let's face it. We want somebody to entertain us. We want a church that's going to entertain us. We want a mission community group that's going to entertain us. We need a church to tell us when to go bowling and skating and when we're going to go to the movies and what we're going to, meal we're going to eat. And we've got to meet at this time, this time, this time. We've got to have, we, want, we want that kind of emotional, kind of coddling sort of thing. We want to go to church and laugh. We don't want to go to church and really cry. We don't want to go to church and hear really hard things like some of the stuff that we're hearing today. We just want to go and, and, and hear, you know, my, my pastor, he's real political, so that's where I go. My pastor's really funny. He's really charismatic. And I'm not saying that's always the pastor's fault. That's the parishioner's fault. That that's what they think that church is all about. Now, if the guy's getting up front and saying, come to this church, I'm funny. <laughs> now, that's weird. You should leave. Okay? You should leave. Tell him that's crazy, then leave. All right? Just don't leave, because that's what we're really good about doing in churches, too. You go tell him that's not funny. <laughs> I'm leaving, because it's not funny. We're a culture that is obsessed with emotional highs and fantasy. 
Think about the video games we play, the movies we watch, the TVs, the romance novels, the feeling of an emotional hole within us. That's what they're doing. There are a few of us who love documentaries. We're called geeks. Okay? For the most part, though, we'd rather watch something much more entertaining. If you were to look, I guarantee if you were to study this statistically, there are very many more people who are reading non, excuse me, fictional books than there are nonfiction books. Why? Emotionalism, entertainment, that need to connect to some fant- fantasy world that pulls me from the existence that I'm in and allows me to live vicariously through whatever this video game is, this, this whatever over here. This is true not only outside of the church, but it is true within the church. As a pastor, I have to be very careful about using illustrations outside of the scripture. Because if we could be honest, how many times have you left mission and you don't remember anything that I've shared from scripture, but you remember the story I told? The story isn't the gospel. God's word is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. But that's what we'll do. And those of us who are gifted storytellers, it can be a real temptation for us to constantly be having to think of some emotional or funny story to tell you why so that you'll like whatever is being said or so that you will connect to whatever is being said. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that the truth of the scripture should be enough. It should be enough. You know, I could get up here and read a video manuscript and most of us would be like, yeah, that's nice. We need to work. We need to feed the children. But if I show you pictures of starving kids who have bloated stomachs and rib cages, all right, and drawn mouths, flies all over them, what do we immediately do? I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm just saying we have to be very careful extremely careful with those things. I'm a firm believer that Scripture's desire for us as believers is to engage the mind first. Some of y'all tried to fight me on that about a year and a half ago. My wife, Pastor Justin, we were in a Bible study. All right. I believe over and over and over again, God's desire... First, isn't your heart, but it is your mind. Because it is from your mind that your heart follows. And I think that we can see this over and over and over again in Scripture, and we see this tension. How do you evaluate what takes place here on a Sunday morning experience here at Mission Church? How do you evaluate your mission community group? Is it on what you've learned or how you were moved emotionally? If we place our experience over truth, this becomes a problem not only for you but for all of us because judging our worship services, our gatherings, our mission community groups, your relationship with Jesus on experience, then if that's how we are doing it, then you are standing on very, very shaky ground. Shaky ground. Because what if your emotions are different than my emotions? Whose are true? Because isn't that the difficulty that we have sometimes in our marriages? You're up, she's down. Conflict. <laughs> same, you've been to the same experience. 
You know, she's up, you're down. So who's right emotion? You watch a movie together. I, I love that movie. I hated that movie. Who's right? Okay. How many times, let me ask you this. Let's be really honest. Preaching is something that we have to endure to get to the music. Preaching is something we have to endure to get to the music. I hear this from all the time from people. Not only is my pastor funny, but we have awesome music. The reason I really go there is because of the music. Or the reason why I really go there is because they have great community. Ladies and gentlemen, and this is going to sound weird because I'm the preacher, but I have to do it because I believe that's what Scripture is, is getting to. See, these people were zealous, but it was based on ignorance. It wasn't based on knowledge. We are unapologetic here at Mission for what takes place here and the time we take in the preaching of God's Word. We are unapologetic for that. Because here's what I know. It's for a lot of you, this is the only Bible teaching you are getting for seven days. And it deeply concerns me. Deeply. If I only had one opportunity to feed my child one day a week, I would feed them all that I could. Because I knew that was going to be their last. Right before I go to Haiti, I don't care what Coach Mike says, I eat every bit of what I want to eat. $2,000 or 2,000 calorie lattes, like nothing. I'm going to slam as many of them as I possibly can. I'm going to eat whatever, because I know when I get to Haiti, I'm going to put on a good smile and I'm going to eat whatever those people put in front of me. Because that's a respectful thing to do. Okay? If this is your last meal, and some of you aren't going to eat spiritually until next Sunday, I'm going to give you Pastor Justin, when he preaches, he's going to give you. If Pastor BJ ever preaches, he's going to give you all that he can possibly give you within that hour because some of you won't eat again. Because people don't have daily quiet times. They're not engaging in God's Word. They're, they're not studying God's Word. They're not laboring over it. It's not their heart's desire to know God. It's their heart's desire to go to church to go to a worship experience or go to a mission community group. I mean, I can see this because a lot of us, we give you devotionals. So your Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday devotional life is given to you by this church. Yet most of you don't do it. Just being honest. Okay? And, and, and it's not a, it's, I just want you to know that, I hope that you hear this. This is out of love. But it's just the truth. And we can say the truth and be wrong because of the way that we say it. But I, I hope that you hear this from me today. How do we live if that's our lives? No wonder our hearts for the lost, our prayers for the lost are, are weak because they're not driven by the Word. 
not saying that this is the way that you have to do it, okay? Um, But for some of us, we have chosen to combat this by doing most of our worship through singing at the end. A lot of times when you come to, to mission, we do most of our singing at the end. That's on purpose because we want you to have the knowledge of why we should sing what we sing. That's why the response time is at the end of our worship. That's why we have extended singing at the end is we want to wreck your mind, your knowledge. We want you to see bigger who God is, who the greatness of God is, the greatness of salvation, the greatness of Jesus. We want you to see that and then based on that truth, man, throw your hands in the air, kneel down before God, shout amen, get involved in this worship. Why? Because of the truth of God's word has been spoken. This is, ladies and gentlemen, the word of God. Be zealous, yes, but that zeal must be based on knowledge. Haven't you ever gotten an argument? I've gotten an argument with Laura and been like all fiery and passionate about it and just sure that I'm right, only to find out that I'm wrong. You ever done that? You know how dumb, because you remember when you find out that you were wrong? I'm sorry, you know, but I got a justification. All the facts weren't given to me. I mean, but that's how we look. Our zeal for God, the Jews really struggle with this because their zeal for God wasn't based on the truth of salvation. It was based on their own ideas. So that's why for us, we're trying to combat some of this by putting music at the end and, and being very careful that when we do sing in response to God, that we're careful about what we sing. There's some songs in Christendom that I love. But you know what? We shouldn't sing them. Because we're singing lies. Jesus, I believe in you. And I will go to the what? To the ends of the earth. Like BJ, I can't do that, okay? (laughs) To the ends of the earth for you. All right? Beautiful song. We used to sing it like five or six years ago at other churches you probably came from. I love that song. It's called To the Ends of the Earth, I think. Jesus, I believe in you. The next statement, and I will go to the ends of the earth. How many of you guys have sang that song? Where you been? Franklin. (laughs) Tea barbecue. What have we just encouraged as your pastors for all of that congregation to do? Lie. We're singing lies. Jesus, I believe in you. If you do, you're good, right? Okay, amen. Jesus, I believe in you, and I will go. You don't need to sing that part, because you're lying. You're lying. The air I breathe. I love that song. I've played on my guitar, sitting there, and just tears running down my face at the house. This is the air I breathe. All right? I try it at home. I don't try it here. Okay? This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence. Right? And then he goes, the chorus is, because I'm desperate for you. Right? No, you're not. Is it the air you breathe? Yes. Are you desperate for God? Nope. So what have we just told you to do as a church? Lie. 
we have been singing lies to God. Now, Oceans, because it's my favorite song right now, I could nail that one too. Because most of it is you're singing lies. You're singing lies. It comes on the radio and Ava's like, in the back seat, singing lies. Singing lies. Why? Because it's not based on truth. And y'all say that doesn't matter. Well, when you love music more than you love preaching, and this is no slight on Pastor BJ, because Pastor BJ would tell you the same thing. If you love God's music, or this music, more than you love God's word, then you are gravely mistaken. Gravely. There's some songs that we've sung that we won't sing again. There's some, some songs that we need to sing. That's why we try to sing more about God and who He is. Because if you say God is love, is that true? Yes. All right? God never fails. Is that true? Like we sang this morning? Yes. I'll go to the ends of the earth sharing the gospel for you. Jen and Jason Lewis. (laughs) They can sing that. You won't go to the end of your street. You won't go, hey, cubicle, person. You. So don't sing lies to God. You'll be zealous about it. We have all been in those worship experiences. I am the chief of sinners in this. Be like, yeah, I will go to the ends of the earth for you. I'll go to Haiti for 10 days and I'm going home. Right? We've done it. I'm desperate for you. If you're desperate for God, then... Fasting a meal because you long to be with God. Turning off the radio because you long to be with God. That's desperation. Not just singing a song about it. We have to be careful that we're not singing lies. Write this down. Knowledge without zeal is unhealthy. Okay? So if you have all of this knowledge, you know all this stuff. But there is no zeal. There is no passion. There is no burning inside of you. That's why I feel like most of the time I'm going to spontaneously combust up here. Because of what you know, if, if there is knowledge without zeal, there is great unhealth in you and in our congregation. Okay? you got to understand that. I'm not just bashing on zeal. But my zeal must be based on knowledge. And I'm going to pick at us just for a second. Again, Mission Church, you are the frozen chosen. Most of the time, you're the frozen chosen. Okay? We will preach our guts out. We'll talk about substitutionary atonement. You can't save yourself. Jesus has saved you. Isn't this awesome? crickets let's sing about the greatness of what we just learned that because of my sin yet jesus has saved me he's elected me he's chosen me before i did anything good or bad that should stir within us just this exhilaration this hot boiling out overflowing with enthusiasm for god and yet we sit there at response time like robots robots frozen and please don't tell me that you don't act excited ever because i have seen you i've seen you at sporting events 
all right? You do not watch Kentucky basketball with Lindsey Bostwick. She will beat you to death. This is what she does the entire time. She, oh, mm, Collie Stein, Collie Stein, that's my man, that's my man. She walks back and forth. She can't sit down. She pacing back. Oh, mm, Collie Stein, Collie Stein. Like, Collie Stein knows her. Like, they his boo. All right? Hey, I've known her since she was like 12, okay? I've played sports with you. Some of you, I've had to grab you by the shirt collar and say, you need to calm down. You're embarrassing me. All right? My wife does it. Sell! Yes! Take my money. I hate it. Don't tell me. Miss Stephanie's about to give birth to little Nora, little Eric Jr., that's what it's going to be like that day. Excitement, passion, zeal. Get thee behind me, Justin. All right? So don't tell me that there's no such thing as excitement, that you don't get excited or emotional or don't have passion for something. It's just something other than Jesus. Something other than Jesus. I can watch videos of people hunting deer on YouTube and I feel like I'm there. Buck fever. Buck fever. Shoot it. Shoot it. Shoot it. Yes! Got him! I mean, my, my cousin shot a 14-pointer yesterday. He's like 10. I've been hunting for 37 years. And I'm like, oh! They locked that sucker up in a pen. I know it. Let him shoot that deer. (laughs) Jealous. Don't tell me. Do not tell me. Because you're going to be lying that you don't get excited. Sometimes I think God goes, that's what we do at our house when things aren't going so well or when something crazy happens. Ava goes, and sometimes I feel like at the beginning of our worship, we're like, yes, yes, here's the word, here's the word, here's the word. Because frozen chosen. I pray that we burn with a hot white passion for God that is based on truth though, okay? Based on truth. I've cut myself and I'm bleeding all over my notes. Enjoy that recording. (laughs) It's what happens when you get passionate. Only admission. All right. So is zeal important? Yes. Zeal is important. Based on knowledge. But I want you to get that. Knowledge without zeal is unhealthy. Zeal without knowledge, though, is deathly. It is deathly. 
Imagine we have a rocket. This rocket is full of fuel, which is zeal. It also has a guidance system, which is its knowledge. A rocket without a guidance system is extremely dangerous. Remember as a kid, I used to take all the, the, the bottle rockets I could possibly get, get a mason jar. You set all of the bottle rockets into the mason jar. You light them all at once, and everyone run! Why? Because they have fuel. They do not have a guidance system. So everybody, all the kids are running around all over the place. Why? Because there's nothing controlling where that rocket is going. It must have a guidance system. It will do great damage, but it will not achieve its objective. In contrast, a rocket with a great guidance system, but with no fuel, will never leave the launch pad. Which rocket are you? Which rocket is mission? See, some of you know some stuff. Some of you are Bible geeks. You know some stuff. We don't leave the launch pad. Because you know what mission community groups, part of that is you coming to that mission community group. And man, I need you to pray for Brandon. Brandon's lost. I met him this week. I've been sharing the gospel with Brandon this week. We need to pray as a group. We need to stop whatever we're doing right now. Because there's nothing more important than praying for the lost at your mission community group. And when you're sitting there in that place, you should be praying for that person. But a lot of times we gather. We don't have our notes. We don't have our Bibles. We wait for somebody to pass them out to us. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Um, and I, I didn't fill these out because I've been reading Beth Moore, Beth Moore. And if you've been doing that, don't fill it out. Read some Beth. She's awesome. But we don't have that excuse. Pray for the loss. Pleading. Leave the launch pad. God desires zeal based on knowledge. 2 John 1.9 Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have the word. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He tells us over and over again about having sound doctrine. Titus 1.9 Titus 2.1 1 Timothy 1.10 In 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 it says all scripture is breathed out of God uh, out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that in Excuse me, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best. You know what that is in the Greek? Let me geek out on y'all. Do your best in the Greek is the term for zealous. Listen to what he says. So do your best or be zealous to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So be zealous, be passionate, just make sure it's really based on the things of God's word, on who God is and whom God says he does. If, if not, then you get some really misconstrued things that begin to take place in Christendom. In Acts chapter 2, you guys remember this? They're up in the upper room. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They begin to speak in tongues to evangelize to those who are lost around them. So let's say, for instance, if it was here, I can't speak Spanish. The Holy Spirit would come upon me, enable me to speak the gospel to someone who can understand Spanish in hopes of them hearing the gospel. That's what's taking place there in Acts chapter 2. But there are a lot of unbelievers who have gathered outside of that room, right? And do you remember what their critique was? Them people were drunk. Them people was drunk. The faith that I, or the tribe, 
the Christian tribe that I grew up in, you know what they took of that? Well, if the outlookers were looking at them and the church people appeared and they called them drunk, then that must mean that we can get drunk in the Spirit. And so literally, I would go to church camp, and they'd be like, look at, look at Bill over there. There was a guy named Bill at my church camp, and I saw him do this. They said, look at Bill over there. Bill is drunk in the Spirit. See, some of y'all have been Baptist for so long, you don't know what that's like. But for me, I didn't grow up Baptist. And so when I looked at Bill, and they said he was drunk in the Spirit, if you've ever seen the Andy Griffith show, there's a man named Otis. He's the town drunk. You remember how Otis would be stumbling around like this? This 12-year-old kid. You go up to him, what's up, Bill? I'm drunk in the Spirit. Is that what that Bible verse was saying? Zeal? Yes. You ever been to a Pentecostal church camp? I mean, it is church all day. And swimming with sweatpants on. You ever done that? <laughs> it's terrible. Okay? You're just like, your old body's melting. My pastor's funny. Y'all should come back next week. All right? Hours. Hours. Jumping up and down. I don't remember any of the sermons growing up. But I remember kids waving church flags like this right here, running up and down, jumping, doing victory is mine. All these hand motions, Lord, I lift your name on high. I mean, the whole bit. Over and over. That's the real motion for the song. Some of y'all looked at me like, oh. That's what you do in the song, no joke. Thank you, recording. All right. And people would be like, that was the best youth camp ever. Eric got saved for the fifth time. It's true. All of these sorts of things. I've been in worship services where they would say, all right, everybody speak in tongues. Just look at the crowd. Everybody speak in tongues. And you know what everybody started doing? Speaking that gibberish stuff. And then when I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible, and I get to that part in Corinthians where it says if somebody speaks in tongues in church, it should not happen any more than three times. And every time that it happens, there should be an interpreter. Why didn't they ever teach us that verse? So when you look at a worship service and everybody's jumping up and down speaking all this unknown tongue, that's not what the truth says. Because the truth says there should be order to it. That should not happen any more than three times in one worship experience and that there should be an interpretation so that everybody knows what's going on. But that's not what happens. Alright? Now Baptists do it too and Presbyterians. Are, but I'll speak to my growing up. Snake handlers. That's in the Bible. Did y'all know it? Mark chapter 16. They'll take up serpents. Next week, come back. Laughter in the Spirit. I've seen people laugh for hours. There is something called the Toronto Blessing that happens in Toronto. I think it's still going on. You can YouTube it if you want. And it is nothing but people at church 
laughing hysterically, and they say it is the Holy Spirit. Where is that in the Bible? I have seen it with my own eyes. Just people for hours just laughing hysterically. I'm like, I missed the joke. In closing, you guys, I took it literally when I said we're unapologetic for how long we spend in this. I'm not going to mention names here because you may know these people, but it was put out on Facebook, and so it was public, so I'm going to share it with you because this is our culture. This was somebody's Facebook status this last few weeks somebody shared with me. Can you be a Christian because you believe in God and in Jesus Christ? but disagree with some of the teachings in the Bible? Can you be a Christian, but not believe that the Bible is His literal word? I believe in God, but not because the Bible tells me so. I believe in God because I feel Him. However, I've had a very challenging time embracing the Bible as Christianity says it should be. No. You can't. Do you have to know everything about the Bible? No. You're saved by Jesus. Okay? But here's the deal. How do you know who Jesus is? If we don't know what his word says and believe his word. This person believes that the Bible is nothing but a bunch of fables. That it's just a bunch of stories put together by corrupt men. And that they're lost and undone. And they can say whatever they want to say. This is the culture we live in. This is religious plurality. Ladies and gentlemen, closing, you guys have been very patient today. Thank you. When Jesus goes to the cross, and for Jesus, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. When Jesus goes to the cross, It was religious zeal that helped put him there. Was it not? It was. It was religious zeal for God. It was the Jewish people who were greatly zealous for God. And yet, their zeal was not based on truth. They rejected the truth. Because who is the truth? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. Truth is a person. True knowledge is a person. His name is Jesus. And so this religious zealousness, this, this idea of being passionate for God, and yet if we are passionate for God and miss Jesus, we have missed it all. Because is it not what Luke says as Jesus hangs upon the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what 
they are doing. He has called us to know Him. May we come to Jesus this morning. May this place be a house of prayer for the lost. May it be a place of communion with brothers and sisters in Christ. May you and I recommit ourselves to daily reading of God's Word and seeking for God to move in our lives and saving everyone. And again, this does not mean that you have to know everything about the Bible before you come to Jesus. I'm just saying that once Jesus has saved you, desire to know, burn passion for God. I want to know God, so I want to know His Word. If you are lost and you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, I invite you to come to repent, to confess with your mouth, believe that Jesus is Lord, and follow after Him. Today, when you were coming in, you received two little white cards, right? That's what this is for. I want you to take out those white cards, and for a few moments here, as Pastor BJ begins to lead us in worship, one of those cards is for you. And one of those cards is for us as your pastors. During the first part of this song, I I, I want Pastor BJ to to lead us, but I want us to take a moment of focusing and meditation upon what we have just heard. That God desires that we have a heart for the lost, that God desires that, that we pray earnestly for the lost, and that God desires that we have a zeal for Him, but that a zeal is based on knowledge, that it's based on truth. This is what I want you to do. On those cards, I want you to write the names of a lost person or multiple lost people that you know. I want you to take one of those cards and for like many of us, if you have a pocketbook, something uh, like I keep my ID right there. I want you to take that white card, one of those white cards with the names on it, and I want you to put it somewhere where you can see it. That you will daily be having a reminder to pray for those lost people. Okay, if you don't want to put last names because of, you know, just people finding out, whatever. On those cards, I want you to write the list, the same names. A name, multiple names. I want you to put one of those cards somewhere where you're going to see it often. The other card, what I would like for you to do with that. Is today, if as we come, you don't have to take communion that's left up to you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not allowed to, because that's what the Bible says, so don't do that. If you are a believer, you're more than welcome to take in communion. But even if you don't take in communion, at some point today, as a sign of, of desiring to see these people meet Jesus, his cross, and his resurrection, I, w- I don't want you to fold up that paper. Don't wad it up like some of us do our dollar bills when we put them in the offering plate. Just... Put it in this box. And we as the pastors are going to pray specifically those names that you have listed and that Jesus would save them. If you don't have anybody's name to write down, then take a moment to pray that you will get off the launch pad. That you would seek God with everything inside of you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time, this extended time of your word today. Lord, I pray right now for the lost, whether they're in this room or out of this room. Lord, I pray that you would move. And Lord, I pray that this today would be received well, that it's not just a a shouting match or 
Oh, there goes Eric again, yelling at us. Lord, I pray that me, Lord, that I would burn with a heart for you, Jesus. That would earnestly seek you to save people like Brandon and Lee. And Lord, that the things that I get passionate about, may they be based on truth and not just emotionalism. God, I pray for our church. Jesus, move. Move in a mighty way, God. Amen.